you will, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. I think we're good there, aren't we? Can you hear me now? Alright. Revelation chapter number 3, and we'll pick up our reading in verse number 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and will not, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Again, Father, we come to you. I'm just reminded that we're... Without you, Father, without your Son, we're nothing. Lord, every time I stand up, every time I open the Word, there's a bit of anxiety, I think, in my heart. You know that. Um because I know how incapable I am. Yet You're always gracious, Father, to meet us. And You're always, Father, willing to speak through Your Son by the power of Your Spirit. Father, You're always able and willing to accomplish a work in our hearts, Father, that is exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. So, Father, we're praying that You would accomplish that this morning as we approach Your Word. Father, no doubt with needs from every, um, from every place, and everywhere, Father. Each of us uniquely made, yet personally made by You, who knows the very recesses, the very intents of our heart. So we pray, Father, that the Word of God would go forth this morning, even in my own heart, discerning, dividing asunder, Father, discerning even the very intents and thoughts of my heart. Father, pray that You'd bring to light those things which are in darkness. Father, that You would bring to light sins that need to be repented of, and, um, Father, uh, commend those areas in which we are faithful. Father, we know that the Word of God is a double-edged sword, and it pierces to the dividing asunder. And as painful as that can be on some mornings, Father, um, we understand the good and the need of it. So we pray that You would do that now by the power of Your Spirit, Father. And um, we pray that if somebody's here that doesn't know Christ, that today would be the day, Father, that they experience a new birth. Father, that the Word of God would go forth into their hearts in a mighty way and You'd bring them to faith. Father, that they would put their faith and trust in You. God, that um, there would be a new babe born together in the family of God and that You'd help us disciple and nurture it, Father, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Father, we pray that um, those that are discouraged and downcast, that You would encourage them. We pray, Father, those who are in unbridled sin, that You would rebuke them. Father, and at the end of the day, we pray that in whatever capacity is necessary, that You would use Your Word to make us more like Your Son. That we, Father, <clears throat> would display the glory and character of Jesus Christ in a more faithful way as a result of our gathering together. Father, we pray that You would make Yourself known through Your Son by the power of Your Spirit in the next hour. And we trust You with this, Father, because we know we can't do it ourselves. Help us simply to be faithful, even now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. If you've been with us, and I know that some of you are visiting with us this morning, 
Um, we finished up, for the most part, the book of Mark, just trekking through that verse by verse with a couple of sermons to linger. In the meantime, as I study that particular text, we've taken it as our task to take the first portion of the book of Revelation, particularly chapters 2 and 3, um, to make our journey through the seven churches which are, at Revela- or which are um, in the book of Revelation. And we've made it through four of those now. Um, we've made it through chapter number 2, and we've seen a great deal of God's provision of grace for His children, and also much encouragement and commendation, yet at the same time we've seen much rebuke and instruction uh, from our Lord. All which is needed. We think of it in a, in, a, in a way of positive and negative, but in all reality, our Lord is gracious to come and to correct us and rebuke us when we're wrong. Um, he's gracious to come to us and without, without the sword immediately, patient and long-suffering, um, to bring to light the very depths of, of the darkness and the recesses of our souls, to bring to light the blind spots um, that we may repent and return. And that's what we've seen. We've seen um, the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos receive a vision from our Lord. He's there in the midst of persecution, possibly some of the greatest persecution of his life. There's a good chance he doesn't think he's going to make it off of the island alive. In the midst of it, our Lord graciously uh, meets him there in, in one of the most glorious visions that we have all throughout not only the New Testament, but also the Old Testament. I mean, he... And He reveals Himself. That's the purpose of the book of Revelation. I know that it's easy to get lost in numbers and charts and eschatology or the study of end times and dates and various other symbols and lose sight of what the true purpose of the book of Revelation is. Not that those things aren't important, but it seems that the ultimate purpose in verse number 1 of chapter 1 that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants. That at the end of studying the book of Revelation, if Jesus Christ is not larger, bigger in your mind, more extravagant, more majestic, more glorious, more powerful, seemingly more sovereign in your inner man, if He has not been revealed to you um, in some new way or in some deeper fashion, and you've formulated your chart, then you have failed. And the, the book of Revelation should put us on our face as it did the Apostle John in some sense. As Jesus Christ comes to us in the power of the Word of God and reveals to us Himself. And in, 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 in that mirror we see ourselves. We see Him as, as Revelation says, the one who is worthy to unlock the scrolls. And, and as we gaze into His glory and magnificence, we see the reality that we are not worthy outside of Him. And thus it causes us to fall upon our faces. And that's the purpose, it seems, of the book of Revelation. But what in this vision, our Lord gives John a commission as well. And that commission is to go, particularly to seven churches throughout Asia Minor. Not the only seven churches, but seven particular churches. Possibly representative of seven churches in every age. Um, you can line them up expositionally or verse by verse in a ge- geographic manner. That on the postal route, as the messenger is taking this book to the seven churches... He'll first meet chapter 2, verse 1, Ephesus, and work his way around. But you can also line these up spiritually. You have two churches that are 
um, seemingly faithful, no condemnation. You have three churches that you'll find are in the middle ground. God commends them for some faithful things, and yet at the same time, there's much to be reformed within the nature of and the activity of the church. So our Lord offers rebuke and instruction. And then there are two churches which it seems that there is no commendation for the church at large. Um, nothing good to say about them. And it seems that they are in the midst of their decline and utter demise. And that's one of those churches that we read of here this morning in chapter 3 and verse number 1. It's the church at Sardis. And we began this last week, so we took the first portion of this text last week. So just a quick recap, the church at Sardis. Um, at first we looked at the city, the city of Sardis. Sardis was a city southwest of Thyatira, the church that we left a couple of weeks ago. You'll remember the messenger is making his way to all the churches. As he comes upon Sardis, he would have seen a magnificent city. Um... It was a city known for its wealth. It was a city known for its power. It was a city known for its impregnable fortress. It was actually referred to in ancient times as the impregnable city. It was also referred to as the Queen of Asia. That is up until about 500 B.C. when in the middle of the night there was an unguarded wall in which uh, a, a man, a, a, an army was able to penetrate. You see, prior to this, there was no one that could withstand Sardis, not their forces. They were on what was called an Acropolis, a higher ground. It was impregnable. No one could fight them face to face. But historians recount the overconfidence and the pride and arrogance of the, the, the city of Sardis such that they thought that they were impregnable and they put down their defenses throughout the middle of the night and fortresses would lie in wait to overwhelm them through an unguarded, um, unguarded spot. One historian writes that the, that the army that was waiting to um, advance saw a soldier drop a helmet over the wall. The soldier proceeded down the wall, picked it up and scaled back up. And the army thought, that's our way in. In the middle of the night, no one was guarding the area and they overtook the city by night through that one unguarded area. It may be very well applicable to those who are in Sardis now. Why? Because our Lord offers a judgment in which unless they repent, He will come to them, how? As a thief in the night. That Sardis in their overconfidence, Sardis in possibly their arrogance, um, has left the church unguarded. And it seems that compromise has overwhelmed it. Um, false teaching has entered in. Um, it's overtaken. Um, signified by the defiling of garments in verse number 4. It seems that they're given over to immorality. It seems that they're given over to false doctrine. And it's overwhelmed the church such that Jesus Christ can look at them and rightfully, truthfully say, you have a reputation that you're alive, but you're not. You're dead. This would have been a reputation, that they would have had a reputation possibly within the community and among the churches. That this was a vibrant church. This was an active church. This was possibly a, a church that ministered in the community in some capacity. That when this is read in the other churches, as the messenger takes it uh, throughout Asia, there is a good likelihood that as they hear the, 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 the message to the church at Sardis, they're all taken back and surprised. Why? Because this church has a reputation of strength, of power, of might, of ableness, of capability, of a whole host of things. 
But Jesus Christ comes to this church and pointedly says to them that you have a reputation that you're alive but you're dead. And we saw that in this church, Jesus Christ presented Himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And as we looked at that, I made the argument that the seven spirits of God there um, speaks of the fullness of the Spirit of God. And we see that in the Old Testament as well as in the New. And that what I'm arguing for is, is that Jesus Christ presents Himself to this church in this way because He wants to bring to reality the fact that, that there is something missing within this church and I believe that it's the Spirit of God. That, that, that that's the significance of also verse number 2. For I have not found your works perfect before God. The word there, perfect, you may have a translation that literally says um, uh, fullness or incomplete. That's the idea. It's not talking about perfect in the sense of ultimate purity, but in completeness. There's something that's lacking. The word could be translated fullness. There's a word picture with this original word that gives the idea of a shell. I mean, and it's and it's not full. It's a shell that's not full. Is the idea. It gives the idea of a whited sepulcher full of dead men's bones. It would be like one of you children walking outside. We used to have a, a dog who, we, who was relentless on turtles. Man, and we would go out and he would have it cornered and he would stay there all day guarding it. Um, a turtle that, that, that is in its shell, it's hard to tell if there's anything in it. But as you look at it from a distance, um, you would say, it's a turtle. But until you go up and you pick it up or you, you provoke it, or, and then when you pick it up and find there's no weight in it, um, you realize that it's just an empty shell. That's what Jesus Christ, in some sense, is saying here to the church at Sardis. That there is a shell. When people look at you from a distance, it seems like there's a life and activity, and you give the appearance of life. But when picked up, there's no weight to it. There's no glory in it. There's no spirit, spiritual activity that is flowing through it. It's, it's dead. There's nothing there. And so he gives, so, so he, he presents himself to present this scathing rebuke to this church um, here at Sardis, who is falling and almost fallen completely to its demise. Why? Because there is no spiritual life um, in this church, at least in a corporate way. With the exception of what we find here this morning, verse number four, a few names. A few names even in Sardis in verse number 4. It's quite a, a, a drastic phrase, isn't it? In a place where you've heard the identification of the lifelessness of our Lord, the lack of spiritual activity, a place where you'd think that after Christ rebukes them in this fashion, it's totally gone, it's done, yet He says, I have a few names that have not yet defiled their garments. And he goes on to instruct these few names and how they are to govern their lives um, in the midst of this godless, lifeless, yet active institution. And while there's much instruction here, I think it in some sense hangs on this one word here in verse number 5, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and will not blot out His name from the book of life. That what we have here is not an explicit mandate to overcome, but a proposition that he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And he carries on with more positive promises. Contained within the proposition, though, is a reality. 
And within that reality is a mandate. And the reality is, is that he who overcomes shall be this. And the implication is, is that if you're not an overcomer, if you will, is that judgment will come like a thief in the night in a way that you would never expect. So the implication not only here, but essentially throughout the entirety of the New Testament, is that there is a call, a charge, and a command to overcome. And the reality is, is that it's not only here at Sardis. And I want to apologize to you. Because there is in some sense um, that I have overlooked or superficially dealt with in every church the positive aspect of this. Yet, I see now that it is extremely important and want to this morning to give our attention really to this concept of overcoming. And then we'll look at the rest of the text as well. This, this idea is, a, is an idea or a concept, a word that is used overwhelmingly by John. John uses it frequently. I want to say that it's used 28 times in the New Testament, most of which is used by John and most of which is used here in the book of Revelation as well as in the, the book of 1 John. If you will, turn back to 1 John chapter number 5 with me. We'll spend a little bit of time here this morning. 1 John chapter number 5 and verse number 4, you read these words. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is He who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The word, the word here literally means to conquer. It literally means to carry off the victory. It's used both of Christ as well as the Christian church. And the idea is, is that there's a battle that's raging. There's a conflict of sorts within the world, and there is a victor. It can be both positive as well as negative. It's spoken of even Satan himself at times, given a certain charge, and he overcame the saints in a physical way. Uh, but most often it's used either of our Lord or it's used of us. And the idea is simply this, and you know it, that Christianity, that Christians throughout the ages, geographically, historically, are in the midst of a battle raging in the world. And they are to persevere. They are to endure to the end that they are to take the victory that has already been given to them by Christ. That this is a call in Revelation for Christian perseverance. Um, that in the midst of the battle, it doesn't look as we often think that it would though. That the battle for Christian, for Christianity, the battle for Christ looks different. It doesn't necessarily look like a battle that we see today. It's not like in Sardis with armies on both sides in a physical way. What it looks like is it looks like Revelation 2 or Revelation 3. It looks like a believer in the context of a fallen world and an imperfect church striving to be faithful to God as well as to the brethren. And that while there may not be advancement externally like we want to see, that you and I and Christians throughout the ages and everyone that has Christ are just to hold on fast, to hold fast to Christ in such a way. Why? Because to do so is to finish well and to be ultimately victorious, not only in this life, but also, but ultimately in the next. That it looks like there's a few names here in a God-established church that has compromised and begun fading away who are holding the fort 
seeking to honor God through their remaining ministry to this congregation and in this community. It looks like persecution and suffering in one church, but in this church it looks like living in the midst of the dead, ministering in and to a church that is externally vibrant, yet lacks true spiritual life. So I think this morning it would be helpful to look at John's use of the Word. Because John in Revelation seems to, seems to believe that those who are going to read it have an understanding of what he means, an understanding of what he means by overcome. Because he doesn't explain it. He assumes, and he uses it in every single letter to every church. That there's always, whether faithful or unfaithful, it seems like our Lord Jesus Christ wants to utilize eternal reward as a motivation to aid us in persevering. That He wants to not only extend a word of rebuke or instruction and make you hide under a bushel in shame and guilt, but in your repentance to rise up and be motivated to persevere not because He is a ruling tyrant or a despot in the evil sense, but because He is a gracious Savior who extends to His bride, the church, the glories of heaven, and particularly the glory of Christ in Himself, that He offers to every church throughout the seven churches, that those who overcome, He offers to Himself, himself to them in an unbridled way through these promises. And he says, and in some sense he's saying this morning, cling to that. Persevere because of that. So let's quickly look at 1 John chapter number 5. If you're taking notes, the meaning of overcoming. The meaning of overcoming. Maybe we could ask the question initially um, to to, to define the meaning. um, Who are the overcomers? Who are those who persevere? Who are those who... Um, make it to the end? Who are those who endure in the midst of trial, tribulation, suffering, and in the midst of a dead church? Verse number 4, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Every person who has been born of God overcomes the world. Who are the overcomers? Those simply who have been born of God. That's simply what the text says. Thus, we can conclude that everyone not born of God does not overcome the world. The new birth, which you're going to find throughout the New Testament as well as the Old, that the new birth is a necessity to overcome. And all those who have experienced the new birth, it seems, overcome the world. That all true Christians who have Christ indwelling them are ultimately victorious even despite what happens to us in this world. That Romans... They are more than conquerors in Him. One of the old Puritans, John Cotton, said every Christian who has at least has the least amount or the least shred of true grace has the mighty power to overcome the world. And in a few moments, I'm going to talk to you about the means by which we overcome the world. And that overcoming is going to be by faith. But it's not going to be a, a unique type of faith in the sense of volume. That we look at Christians and we think that, that, that there are those who will overcome because they have a great amount of faith. But the reality is, is that regardless of the amount of faith, 
that those who have the Spirit of God and have a Christ-like faith, a faith that is born in them of Him by His Spirit, that the least amount of faith that hangs on to Christ perseveres through this world. It may be battered and it may be bruised and it may be with broken arms and limbs because of, of the wiles of the devil. Um, and it may be battling through sin, and it may seem like the, the, the worst effort from a Christian, but the reality is, is that if God is in them and they are clinging to Christ, some will run towards the prize and some will stumble in, but, but all that are born of God will make it to the end. Why? Because they have the Spirit of God indwelling them, who keeps them and utilizes the means of grace to bring them to Him. That overcoming, we're not talking necessarily about success. We're talking about persevering. We're not talking about running a race flawless. We're talking about running a race. With all of its difficulties, trials and tribulations, we're talking about about exerting energy here. Running towards something. And those who overcome, don't overcome because they are perfect little Christians. They overcome because the faith that they have, as small as it is, is in the right object, which is Christ. And Christ keeps them. So who overcomes? Those who are born of God. Those are the ones and the only ones who overcome, who are the victors, who conquer, who prevail in this life even to the next. What do they overcome? John seems to think that they overcome something. Particularly the world. The world. And that's what he says. He says in 5.19, We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Verse number 5, who, who is He who overcomes the world, but He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That He who overcomes in Revelation chapter 3 in the church of Sardis is He who overcomes the world because He's born of God. And the world, it seems to me, to mean here, not the cosmos in a physical sense, but the world in a spiritual sense. That's what the 519 signifies, that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. He's talking about unsaved, captured, enslaved humanity, fully controlled and governed by the evil one. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, perhaps the best way of defining what the New Testament means of the world is that it is everything that is opposed to God and His Spirit. God calls upon men and women to worship Him and to glorify Him. He calls upon them to, give, uh, to live for His glory. And the world is everything that tries to prevent our doing so. It's fallen man controlled by and governed by the devil. End quote. That when he talks about overcoming the world, he's simply he's speaking of overcoming the evil one, overcoming the spirit of the world. I'm overcoming the spirit of the age and everything that contains within it. So what does it mean to overcome the world then? Right? So who is an overcomer? He who is born of God. What is the world? I'm the spirit of the age. So what does it mean to overcome the world? Number one, to overcome the world means to overcome the ruler of the world. Um, 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 13, you read 13 and 14, you read, I write to you fathers because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children because you have known the Father. I've written to you fathers because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I've written to you young men because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. In overcoming the world, 
it necessarily entails overcoming the evil one. Who's the evil one? None other than the devil. Um, chapter 3 and verse number 7 speaks of he who practices sin is of the devil. Sin characterizes, chapter 3 and verse number 10, sin characterizes the devil and his children. Chapter 3 and verse number 8, he says, For this reason, whoever has been born of God does not sin. That the concept that John is, is getting across to those who are reading the book of 1 John, it's a, it's, it's a book of assurance. It's a book to help you and I understand um, the nature of true saving faith and what it produces in the life of a believer. He wants you and I to know this morning that, that, that if we've trusted in Christ, He writes these things so that you may know um, in whom you believe. That, that it is the Son of God, that you can have full assurance. Thus, He delineates, in some sense, the children of the world and the children of God. And one of the defining characteristics of the children of God is that they are, have overcame the evil one, and it's evidenced by their relationship to sin. That, that, that they are no longer bound under slavery to sin or to the wicked one. Now, it doesn't necessitate that we never sin. We know that John offers these exhortations because he understands the proclivity or the tendency of each of us to strive against sin in our lives. Like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, I try to do the law, but I can't. I want to do the law, but I, you know, I struggle in some sense. Um, but he exhorts the brethren here to understand their position in Christ, just like Paul does in Romans chapter 6. And he says that if you have been buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life, then you have died to sin. The evil one has no more dominion over you. That when he talks about overcoming the evil one and the world, what he's talking about is, is that, that you are no longer enslaved to sin. You are no longer bound to your father the devil. That His dominion over you is, is, is done, null and void. And Paul in Romans 6 says, if that's the case, his application is, is that he says, reckon yourselves dead to sin. Live unto Christ. Live for Him for the rest of your, age, for the rest of your days. Why? Because the eternal reality is, is that, that God has saved you. He, you are dead to sin, so live no longer in it. That's the idea. That to overcome the world means that Satan no longer has dominion over you, church. You have overcame Him through Christ. That you no longer need to live in dominion to sin any longer. You know, I understand that we're in this nature that we call the flesh. And there is this battle raging on a daily basis. Um, Jesus Christ comes, John the Apostle Paul, and Jesus Christ Himself um, offers to you um, the knowledge and the reality that because He died, you died. Died to what? Died to sin. Therefore, live no longer in it. That is how you have overcame the world. Not only have you overcame the evil one, but you've overcame, the, number two, the attraction of the world. Chapter 2 of 1 John and verse number 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That when you've overcame and you've been born of God, your affections are no longer fixed dominantly to this world. Prior to that, that's all you knew. Prior to that, that's all I knew. You know, and it would often veil itself in virtue, in goodness, in good things. Yet we have to realize that, that good things sometimes are the most dangerous things because they deceive us in thinking that we are virtuous. It is the, it is the perfect environment for a self-righteous Pharisee. And I was. You know? 
trying to look at all of my accolades and my rewards and various things and how loving I am and various other things, um, yet to realize that when Jesus Christ would, would, would come to me through His Word, that I was nothing more than a self-righteous, arrogant uh, man, young man who thought that he could achieve his own salvation. Um, and He presents to me, as I look into the perfect law of liberty and see in Himself the mirror of myself, that I am, I am I'm doing all of these things for my own gain and my own glory, and yet I've veiled them in, um, in religious garb or in virtuous garb. That all of our affections prior to Christ, being born of God, are not fixed upon Christ or God, but upon this world. And we love the spirit of the age. But once you come to Christ and you're born of God, John argues that, that, that your love now is no longer a love for the world, no longer a love for self, but a love for Christ. It's a love for God. That we are not to love anything that's sinful in this world more than we love God. That Jesus says that if any man doesn't love father, mother, brother, sister more than me, you cannot be my disciple. That Jesus Christ is ultimately preeminent. He is the one who is to be the greatest loves of all your life. And that once you have, have been gloriously changed by the glory of the Gospel, the love of God is shed abroad in your heart in such a way that now for the joy that is set before you, you sell the field for the treasures that's in it. And people don't always understand that. Family doesn't always understand that conversations with people and they say you put God before your family, you better believe it. Um, that to do that is what Christ calls us to do. Yet what they don't understand is that I can love my wife with all that I am. Um, but, to give her, but, but in that, all that I have to give her is myself. That it is a less love, lesser love to make her preeminent in my life or my children preeminent in their life as the greatest love. They're actually doing worse than if God is the preeminent love. Why? Because if God is preeminent and He's first, all other loves are a derivative love. And now I have the command and ability to love them like Christ loved the church. That actually the lesser love is to love them with all that I am and that's it. Why? Because then all I have to offer is my strength and my power and my ability. But when God is at the forefront and the love of your life and ultimately your husbandman and you are the bride and you give yourself unto Him and He is your utmost affection as He's changed those things and detached you from the world and unto Him, then, then all of your love is a godly love and a powerful love and a love that is able to change. And that's how we overcome. Galatians. I think it's Galatians chapter number 6. Galatians chapter number 6. And verse number 14. But God forbid I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Again, you see the emphasis there on a new creation, the new birth. That circumcision and uncircumcision avails nothing. It's external if the, the internal reality is not, is not true. But, but God forbid, verse 14, that I boast in anything except the cross by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That when a, a new creation, when you are saved by the grace of God and born anew, that, that, that you are detached from the world, it is crucified to you and you to the world. How? Through Christ. That's how you overcome the world. You overcome the world through Christ. 
We have seen Christ. We have seen Him worthy of our affections. We've seen Him worthy of our hearts. We've seen Him like we've never seen Him before. His promises are sure. They're steadfast. Thus, to, to leave the world is not um, inherently a, 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 a chore to do in and of ourselves. It is the, 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 the purpose for which we exist. That that's one of the reasons He was crucified. Why? That we might be crucified to the world and that the world would be crucified to us. That's the reality. How do we overcome? Or what does it mean that we've overcome the world? That we've overcame the affections and attachment to the world? Number three, we've overcame the world by overcoming the thinking of the world. 1 John chapter number 4. 1 John chapter number 4 and verse number 4, I believe it is. You read these words. You are of God, little children, and have overcame them. Because He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world. And the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. To overcome the world is to have a new mind. Right? It says there in the text that they speak to the world and because they are of the world, they listen to them. But why doesn't the Christian get swallowed up? 4b, uh, verse 4 says, because he who is greater in you is greater than he who is in the world. That he directs the credit of overcoming not to the man, not to the flesh and blood, not to you, not to me, not to perseverance, not to steadfastness, not to, to, to skill, not to intellect, not to, to, to spirituality in a, in, a, in, in a spiritual sense. But to, but, but, but to the Spirit of God. Not to spirituality in a natural sense, but to the very Spirit of God. He says the reason you don't listen to the world and you're not captivated and you can take your thoughts captive now is because of the new birth. The Spirit of God now indwells you and you don't think like the Spirit of the age. That which was natural and, uh, and you couldn't understand in the Word. Now the Spirit of God comes and He takes and He transforms you by the renewing of your mind. Now the Word of God captures your heart. Not false teachers, not false prophets, not the spirit of the age. That, that in some sense, the Apostle John, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, when he speaks of the overcomer, I think he has this in mind. That he's not just saying, persevere, push on, in a natural sense, keep running the race. But in some sense, the foundation of it is found in 1 John. Um, that... That, that those that overcome are those that are born of God. Those that have been detached, their affections are detached from the world. They have a new mind. They've overcome the wicked one. They understand the reality that they're no longer in the dominion of sin, but crucified to the world because of what Christ accomplished on their behalf. And that they will overcome not by natural flesh, not by strength of mind, but by faith. That we've seen the... Um, the meaning of overcoming. But what, are the, what is the means by which we overcome? How do they overcome? First uh, John chapter 5 and verse number 4 and 5. And this is the victory that has overcame the world, even our faith. Verse number 5. But He, who is it, He that overcomes the world? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. How do they overcome? They overcome by believing in Christ. It is our faith that is the source of our overcoming. The word believes here and, and, and the word overcome, oftentimes it comes in a, in a sense of, of, of a, a tense of, 
of a completed activity that has ongoing results. And the idea is, is that Christ accomplishes this work in our lives and it continues effectually until the end. Thus, we can be said to be overcomers even though we have not fully yet overcame. It's as good as done. Why? Because we're born of God. The Spirit of God is working in us. The law of God is written upon our heart. He's causing us to walk in His statutes. And through that means of us believing, um, we will overcome. That this is the victory that overcomes, even our faith. That gives some people a little, a little spiritual heartburn. <laughs> because it seems like it's our faith. Right? But we also recognize that faith is a gift from God. Right? It originates in Him. That it is ours because it's His. And He is ours. Thus, what is Christ in some sense, we can say is ours. Why? Because we are in Him. We have all the blessings in Christ in, in heavenly places. And thus, we are uni unified. Like a husband and a wife. There, we have our specific identities, yet at the same time, we're one. That you can refer to one of us, yet refer to both of us. And what is hers is mine, and what is mine is hers. That it's ours, yet it's hers. <laughs> it's mine, yet it's ours. That's the reality with Christ. If you have Christ, you have all of Him. Thus to say it is yours is not to say that it is not His. And that, that the faith that we have is, is even a gift from Him. It's fostered by the Spirit. And that when we believe, we believe in Him because of Him and for Him to His glory. That we overcome and we overcome by faith. That faith is the victory because faith gives us Christ. How does faith preserve us? How do we overcome by faith? Faith is that which feeds us Christ. Right? Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 17, Paul prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Through faith. That faith is that spiritual hand that lays hold of Christ. That the overcomer, that if they're going to overcome in Sardis, they're going to have to have faith. They need to be born of God. They need to understand the truth. They need to be spiritually minded, Christ-like affections, and they need to be believing that the Christ who saved them is the Christ who will keep them. That if they're going to persevere in Sardis in a way that honors and glorifies God, they're going to have to grab a hold of Christ and Him alone. And that is Paul prays. Not only for Ephesus, but in some sense, there's a prayer for all of us. That Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. That, that we might grip Him, lay hold of Him in this spiritual way. That, 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 that faith is that spiritual hand that lays hold of Christ. It's the spiritual faith by which we run to Christ. It's the spiritual eyes by which we see Christ. It's the spiritual mouth by which we imbibe or bring in, feed on, drink of Christ. That we're no longer thirsty or hungry. That we obtain the victory simply by laying hold of Christ by faith. It is not what saves us. You are not saved by faith. You are saved by grace through faith. That faith is that means, that, that pipe, that, that, that process by which that, 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 that transports the grace of God to you. Christ saves. Faith is just that minister that ministers Christ to you. That Sardis, if you're going to hang on, those few names, I know you're discouraged. I know you're downcast. I know you're looking around. Nobody understands your faith. Nobody understands what you're still standing for. You know? Like, those, imagine those few names in the midst of a compromising church. I mean, they come to church and they're the only ones that, that want to read their Bibles. 
And they're encouraging other people to read it as well. They've experienced Christ and they just want to tell someone, but there's almost no one else there to tell. Without being maligned and without being um, uh, encouraged and without being seen as holier than thou or more spiritual than us or arrogant because you have this or that or because you're espousing this type of doctrine which we don't believe here. Can you imagine how lonely it must have felt in Sardis for those few names that hadn't defiled their garments yet when everybody else had? Can you imagine how many people would have just been consumed by that? I mean, they would have been taken in by that. They would have, without a doubt, floated down river with the compromise on many occasions. Yet Jesus Christ comes and says, a few of you have not. There's still a few names. Overcome. How will you overcome? By faith in Christ. Grab a hold of Him. Run after Him. Take hold of Him. And the grace is ready and it's sufficient. That, that it is by faith that we receive Christ. Not only in salvation, but throughout all of the Christian life. That Christ today is readily available for all believers here. For all sinners who, who need to be saved, He's readily available if you'll come to Him by faith. And faith will minister Christ to you in a saving way. Yet at the same time, for those of you who are in Christ, there is a necessity of coming to Him by faith every day. And that He is readily available through His Word, through the table, through one another, to be ministered if you will receive Him. That this morning, He is readily available to be present among us in, in such a way to meet all of your needs according to His riches and glory. It doesn't matter what you came with this morning. Christ is sufficient. Thus, He comes to Sardis in a similar way and says, here I am, the one who has the seven spirits of God. And He's there to encourage those few names to continue on in faith, to continue working, to continue loving, to continue clinging to Christ. He is saying to those who are dead that I'm going to come like a thief in the night, but He is saying to those who are alive, I'm here. I'm here. Like, remember me. Cling to me. Run to me. I'm readily available. Run to Christ. And that will be the foundation of your perseverance or your overcoming. That faith um, helps us, aids us overcoming because faith um, gives us Christ. Number two, it sets us to work. Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. It works through love. Faith works through love. When faith enters the soul of a man, it's a faith that works through love. There's a call to the church at Sardis here that in their overcoming, they're not to just settle down as hermits in the darkness or find a hole to live in. They're not to pitch their tents until Jesus comes. That faith works. That in Sardis, men and women, you still have a work to do. You're a new creation um, and you have a work to do among the believers and unbelievers that are there. Number three, faith works in us to overcoming because it brings invisible truths near. It brings invisible truths near. It makes real things that don't seem real. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 1, right? Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good, uh, a good report or testimony. 
By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were made, which are not, are seen, were not made of things which are visible. That faith ministers to us Christ, but it also ministers to us so many realities of God that are unfathomable, promises that are made, makes them real now. It brings within the soul. Faith brings within the soul by the Spirit of God the presence of distant spiritual eternal realities. Those things, those promises that are eternal, it brings close to us things that affect us here and now. The truth that we, we can't see. The Christ that we can't touch with our hands. John says in 1 John chapter number 1 that we can truly have fellowship with Him. Do you believe that? Like it may not be all that clear and it may not be all that tangible and it won't be like in what John says in 1 John that we, we saw Him with our eyes and we held Him with our hands. But he says with confidence in 1 John in those first opening chapters that, that you can have fellowship with Him as they do. That we can all have fellowship together with Christ. That John seemed to believe, to believe that, that, that Christ was readily available in all of His promises and blessings to the church at, 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 at Sardis, to the church here in 2,000 years later, that faith brings close those realities that we can't see with our eyes and grip with our hands, but, but God brings them to life in our hearts such that it causes us to persevere. You know? Oh, one of the great failures of my life, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, one of the great failures of my life, and one of the great failures as a pastor, is that I have not been heavenly minded as I should be. I have not preached on it often. I have not thought of it as much as I should. I have not told in counseling people um, that are hurting and discouraged and having difficult times in the midst of a marriage that's falling apart. I'm more of a didactic, do this and, 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 the, and be faithful to the Lord. When what you find all throughout Scriptures with Christ, Paul, John, the apostles, almost every one of them, what you find is, is that, that, that oftentimes they put Christ and His eternal blessings before them um, as a means to persevere. And I know that that sounds kind of odd to us at times. Because not only do you see the meaning of overcoming and you see the uh, means by which you overcome, which is faith, but you also see John's motivation for overcoming in Revelation, right? What's the motivation that John gives? John says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. If you have an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That the Apostle John utilizes eternal reward, not only in this letter, but in all seven, and throughout the book of Revelation, to do what? To provoke them to faithfulness. And it seems kind of like strange to us because it sounds much more spiritual to say, I'll serve Christ without reward, doesn't it? You know, I've heard people say whether Christ, you know, whether heaven is real or not, I'll serve Christ even if I'm obliterated at the end of, you know, my life or whatever. And you look at that and you think, man, that sounds mature. That sounds spiritual. Um, but that's not the way that the Apostle Paul thought. That's not the way that John thought. That's not the way that Christ preached, you know. And part of the issue comes in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
um, where love is presented and love seeks not its own, right? It's not there for itself. But just two verses earlier, the Apostle Paul says that, that if you give your life a sacrifice and it's not with love, you gain nothing, right? Paul's whole argument there to, to love is actually to gain something. Now the problem comes whenever we want to gain the improper thing. But even Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, the, uh, 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 Jesus Christ Himself offers to them um, the, the motivation for service and faithfulness and perseverance, eternal reward. And we could go to a number of places. Acts 20 and 35, um, 1 Corinthians. We could go to, to John, to Jesus, to Peter, to Paul, to all of them. Paul who says, I don't run a race for an incorruptible crown that fades away, but I run a race for a, or for a corruptible crown that fades away, but for an incorruptible which will never fade away. That he's, 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 he's running after something. He doesn't beat against the air for no reason. But he's running a race for a prize. And that prize in its essence, of course, is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. That rewards, that, that motivation of re, eternal reward is the most biblical model. But we need to understand what that reward is. That we're not to serve and honor Christ simply because of a glorious mansion in heaven or this or that material blessing. But we are to serve Christ here, even at the expense of ourselves, to the cost of our lives, gaining nothing in this life, that we may receive Christ and Him crucified in its fullness on that grand and glorious day. Thus, in the Revelation, in the book of Revelation, to the seven churches, Jesus Christ Himself presents Himself and offers to His church in every episode and scenario Himself eternally. He said, run on. Keep going. In the midst of compromise, wickedness, know this, that even if you lose your life and you have nothing to show in this life at the end of it, you will have everything in the land to come and that everything is me. You will have manna to feed on. You will have a well that won't run dry. Um, you'll have uh, garments to walk with me in white. You will have fellowship beyond measure run. Persevere. If Sardis doesn't repent, revival doesn't happen, the embers don't, um, don't fan a flame, then know this, that, um, that in the end, you may not gain anything earthly, but you will gain me. That He offers a motivation, the motivation for persevering, eternal reward which culminates in Him. I want to give you an example. Hebrews, turn to Hebrews chapter 11 if you weren't already there from earlier. We looked at the substance of faith in some sense. It grips and grabs things that aren't there. But to bring around an example that I think puts all this together, go to Hebrews 11 and verse 24. And this could be re, um, rehashed in so many of the illustrations that are here. By faith this, by faith Abraham, by faith Enoch, by faith so forth and so on. But I want to give you this one. By faith, Moses. Verse number 24. When he became age of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. 
By faith He kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest He who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempted to do so were drowned. By faith, by faith, by faith. Moses what? What? He overcame the, the affections of the world, right? His mind was changed. Why? Because he was born again and he gripped invisible things and made them a reality through faith such that, that he... he he esteemed the reproaches of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt looking to a reward. Like Abraham, like who was, who was going to a city you know, that, that, that was promised to him, but, but ultimately he's looking to a city whose, whose builder and maker is God. Right? That, 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 the, that Moses overcame how? By faith. Because Christ was ministered to him in immeasurable ways which caused him um, to, to lose grip of the affections of the world and esteem the reproaches. Do you get that? The sufferings of Christ. Greater value than all that Egypt had to offer. I mean, as, a, as, a, 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 as, as Pharaoh had as his, his heritage, in some sense, the adoptive father and family, at his fingertips had the wealth of the world. By faith, he let it all go. Why? Because of his love for Christ. Such that he could say that if I fellowship with him in the fellowship of his sufferings, like the Apostle Paul, I esteem that greater than anything that I could have ever gained if God would have given me another life. You know? Like Moses who had at his fingertips prosperity and wealth and power and prestige just overcame the world. Not bound by sin anymore. Not a slave to his father the devil. Uh, birthed, uh, new, born again in his heart. Given the Spirit of God. Detached affections from the world. Loving Christ. His mind transformed to the point that, that, that God uses him to, 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 to lead the people of God in such a way that we're still enamored by to this day. That's what I mean when I get to Sardis. I think that's what God is calling for when you get over here to those few names. You know? It's easy to look at the world, the city of Sardis. It's easy to be gripped by the affections of the world. But don't be. You know? Don't be. I'm going to walk with you in white, He says. It speaks of purity. It speaks of justification. It speaks of intimate fellowship. Right? Isn't that what he says? He said, A few names in Sardis have not defiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Their worthiness comes through Christ, who is truly worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, in purity, justified, uh, just, just um, enamored with the, um, clothed with the righteousness of Christ in such an amazing way. And I will never blot their name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before His angels. And it can seem at first sight with that, right? That the promise is that they'll fellowship with Him for all eternity in utter purity and holiness and justification and intimacy walking with... Talk about the, 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 if the hearts burned there on the road to Damascus after the resurrection. Imagine how our hearts were burned for all eternity as we walk with Him in white. You know? And He's saying, church, believe that. Grip that by faith. You're having difficulty overcoming? Think about that glorious resurrection walk that you're going to have in a new body. You need some fuel, some gas in the tank for perseverance? Think about that. And know that I'll never blot your name out of the book of life. Um, 
And I'm not going to get lost in the weeds here. But at first sight, it can seem that there's an implication that your name can be blotted out of the book. But I don't think anywhere in Scripture actually says that. The context is that in the ancient world communities that they had books of all of its citizens. And if a citizen did something so illegal or vile, it could bring a reproach upon the country, the nation, and they could remove that name from the book and kick them out of the city. And I think simply what Christ is saying here is that for my people who are called by my name, who are born of my spirit, and whom I'm working in to overcome by faith, I will never do that. If you're a part of the new covenant family, then you are secured in your salvation for all eternity. Why? Because contained within that covenant is the very Spirit of God which will keep you and cause you to walk in His statutes by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God. Um, I think that's what He's saying. You will persevere. Have faith. This is a verse not to scare those few names in Sardis to obedience, but to encourage an assurance of faith to push them on to persevere. He's saying your name will never be blotted out if you are a citizen of my country. Take heart. Live faithfully. Push to the end. I'm not like um, tyrannical rulers um, who on one offense will push you out. I'm there with you, making you more like my son. By the power of my Spirit, therefore persevere. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. They may be able to blot your name out of Sardis' records because of, their hatred from, of, because of your, their hatred for me and your devotion to them. But know this, I will not. I will confess your name before my Father and the angels. I think that's the connection. Don't deny me. Um, be faithful. Persevere. Know that there's a great eternal reward that is to come and it culminates in fellowship with me walking in white and I will never blot your name out of the book of life and I will, when no one else will confess your name before you are despised and rejected of men, know that your name is on my lips. That my affection is for you, my bride. That I am wrapped up in the work that I came to accomplish. And I will complete it until the day of Christ. And I who began a good work in you will complete it till the day of Christ. Know this church, that when you are abandoned and pushed out of that community for the cause of Christ, and you're blotted out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, you will not be blotted out of the book of life. Persevere. When, 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 when you are despised of men, I will confess your name before my Father and my angels. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? That our Lord stands as our great paraclete, that comforter, the one who'll come along. And He's up there telling, I think even now, the angels, look at my boy there. He's faithful. Again, not to glorify Himself, but He's giving it all up for me. That's something... We're talking about in heaven. I'll confess your name before my Father and my angels. There'll be no accusations that come. I'm only the faithfulness. Thus we see in Sardis, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit comes to this church in Sardis, but He also comes to us this morning. I pray with an encouragement. It's not all rebuke, but there's a few names. Um... And He instructs them to overcome. He instructs those at Sardis to overcome. What does it look like? Verse 4, it looks like walking with Christ in white because He's worthy. It looks like walking with Christ in the midst of the church. 
It looks like in verse 2, strengthening the things that remain. It looks like in verse 3, watching, remembering, holding fast, and repenting. It looks like overcoming in the church at Sardis. looks like a church that is alive. A few names that are alive among a, amongst a church that's dead. He is calling them to live, not to die. He is calling them to be vibrant in their spiritual activity, to fellowship with Christ in the midst of this dead community. And when they push them out, they are to know that in their faithfulness, in their perseverance, Christ will keep them forever. That that's how you overcome. That the overcomers are overcomers because the Spirit of God has taken the Word of God and that these people are born of God as they come to Him by faith and repentance and as God fellowships with them in union and communion through the Word, through prayer, through the means of grace. Um, he makes them more like His Son. They have a greater love and affection for Him. Their minds continually transformed. And they begin to esteem the reproaches of Christ greater riches than all the riches of Egypt. Um, and they're remembered, not because of how grand and glorious they are, but because of the Christ they served. And that's the call to the church at Sardis this morning. That's it. Do that. Overcome. And know that you will receive me in unbridled, unbridled fashion on that great and glorious day. So run. Run faithfully, church. And I would just offer the same exhortation to you. Overcome. Overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Grab Him this morning by faith. Down, discouraged, defeated, struggling, wondering what's going on in this world in the midst of chaos and confusion. And it may very well be that God has left you here because He wants a few names. And to grip Him by faith in the midst of a lost and a dying world that they may see the glory of Christ. That you might stir up the last remaining embers in the midst of a dead fire that it may rekindle the flame. So let us move on. Let us reach out to Him by faith. Let us work. Let us labor. Let us love Him more and the world less. And let us stir each other up to love and to good works such that the world may see and know that Christ is King and Savior of all those who believe. So let us overcome. And let us overcome by faith. Let us overcome by faith in Christ. A faith that works, a faith that loves, a faith that labors, even unto death, knowing that if we gain nothing in this world, we gain it all in the next. May that motivate us to move on towards Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank You and praise You for the glory of Christ. We thank You for the privilege, Father, just to ponder and meditate upon those realities this morning. <clears throat> Father, we pray that we've pleased You. Father, we pray that in some capacity we've honored You this morning and we'll continue to honor You, Father, in the, in the hour to come. Lord, we need You. Father, we are incapable outside of Your Son, to accomplish anything in and of ourselves. So we cast ourselves upon You, Father, not only at the beginning of the worship service, but also at the end, recognizing that if anything will be accomplished, Lord, 
Um, we pray that your spirit will do it. Pray that you'll give the, the people here, Father, and those that are listening at home even, um, just a spirit of humility. Give them the faith to believe. Father, give them the boldness and the courage to move forward for the cause of Christ. Help them, Father, to abandon themselves and to move on towards you. Would you give them a glimpse of heaven? Father, would you remind them of the glory of Christ? Will you remind them of what it will be on that great day with new resurrected bodies that will fellowship with Him in a never-ending story throughout the ages? Just continually serving and honoring Christ. May that ease the pain, Father. May that cause an end to the suffering. May you use that, Father, to, to, um, to enliven the souls of men and women and children here at that church to live and to honor you faithfully for the rest of their days. God, would you often remind us and bring us Christ by faith, um, ultimately for His honor and His glory and not our own. Father, would you take this sermon to the very hearts and souls of those who hear, including myself. And Father, if somebody's unsaved, would you save them this morning? Would you bring them to an end of themselves? Father, that they may believe on you and ultimately your Son. And may you use this sermon too just to minister to your saints and cause them, Father, to often be heavenly minded. Let us not think that to be too heavenly minded is to be of too earthly good. But let us to think, Father, often that to be rightfully heavenly minded is the only earthly good. So let us serve and honor Christ, Father, with all that we are and all that we have, quick to be forgotten, that Christ may be exalted for all eternity and in this land. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing. Let's do in Christ alone. That's okay. 187. I believe it is. 177, forgive me. 177, let's sing two verses of this. And then we'll move on to the Lord's table. In Christ alone.